Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about Naomi Novik's novel, Spinning Silver, with fellow medievalists, Carolyn Grunbaum. Hi! Hi, thank you so much for having me. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a postdoc fellow at Yale right now, working on a book project on literary borrowing and translation in medieval Ashkenaz. So that's the Jewish communities in Northern Europe. And I have a PhD in Hebrew and Judaic studies and medieval studies from NYU. So this book was was a great choice. I loved it. So I'm excited to talk about it. I read this book like right after it came out pretty much. And I'd read Naomi Novik's previous book, Uprooted, which is also a kind of fantasy Eastern Europe, but does not have any Jewish content. And when I first read the description of this book, it didn't actually say that it was about a Jewish character. It just said it was about a moneylender named Miriam. And it's like, all right, so I guess that's what we're doing. <laughs> just a brief recap of the book to kind of orient us. This interwoven narrative follows the connected stories of three women. The first is Miriam, daughter and granddaughter of moneylenders, so from a Jewish family, who takes over the family business, but attracts the attention of the king of the Staric, mysterious ice fairies, I guess? White walkers-ish? Yeah, they're basically white walkers, but talk more. And she attracts his attention with her boast that she can turn silver into gold. Wanda, a peasant girl, begins to serve Miriam and her family to work off her father's debt, but develops far deeper connections with the family. And Irina, daughter of the Duke, ends up marrying a Tsar because of jewelry that she received made from this Staric silver that Miriam gets her. So first of all, actually, just what did you think? I really liked it. I couldn't put it down for a while, which is always a marker of a very good book. (laughs) When I finished it, I would say that I had more issue, I don't want to say the word issues, I had more things to think about after I finished it that bothered me more than they did when I read it. So if you're willing to read it and enjoy it and then not really go back and analyze it and think too deeply about it, it's a great story. (laughs) Is that fair? Yeah, we'll we'll get to the end in, we know when we get to the end, but (laughs) the end in particular, I had very mixed feelings about, although there are ways in which I think it works. I don't know. I I have very mixed feelings about the end, basically. Right. right. But the characters are great. She does a great job developing them. And and as you'll see from the the recap, there's a lot of different voices. And she does a great job writing in their different voices. So using different writing style, different vocabulary. She really does. And so Miriam is the character that we meet first. It does, in fact, within like five or ten pages, uh, explicitly say that she is Jewish. So Mm -hmm. that's not something that they're like hiding for the entire book, which for a little while, as I said, just reading the description, I was like, are they going to like not say that she's Jewish? Right. Uh, But they do. Essentially, her family's problem is that her family started off fairly rich because her mother comes from a wealthy family and brought a pretty substantial dowry. But her father is a moneylender, but a really bad one in that he basically just lends money and then never actually asks for it back. So they're all starving and her mother is sick and she then takes over and starts going around and making the collections. And there's a lot of emphasis in this early part, I would say, on her kind of developing this 
coldness and even ruthlessness and not having that kind of sympathy for the for these debtors that her father has. And she finds creative solutions for some of them to pay off their debts. So some of them will give her goods instead of coin, which is a, a bit of a creative workaround maybe that ends up getting her more money because she can sell those goods for for cash. Right. So she ends up really making quite a bit of money. There's one family in particular who is not able to pay their debts and also seems to have basically nothing except for, of course, it's a father and his three children. And the oldest child, Wanda, daughter, ends up coming and working for them as a way to pay off her father's debt. It turns out that this is actually what she wanted. And we very slowly, I would say, get the fantastical elements in this story. So the first is that there's this kind of brief mention of the Staric and something called the Staric Road, but we don't quite know what it is. And then in Wanda's story, there's this fantastical element in that there's this tree, which is where her mother is buried. And she whispers, she kind of whispers a wish to the tree that she'll be saved basically from having to either spend time with her father, who is terrible and an abusive drunk, or get married, which she also doesn't want to do. And then that very next day, Miriam comes and hires her, essentially. Right. So there's clearly something fantastical going on with the tree. Miriam and her mother go to her grandfather in the city, Vishnia. And I love the grandfather in this book, because he is just delighted to hear that his granddaughter has skills and has just kind of established this business pretty much on her own. Right. And I don't know if you, I don't remember if you mentioned this, but her grandfather was also a moneylender. Yes. So he, yeah. And I think, I think she said basically, my grandfather is also a moneylender, but he was a good one, unlike my father. Right. So they have this nice house. <laughs> they have nice stuff. They're, they're living comfortably. They're lending money to the, to the rich nobles in the city. They're doing well. Yeah, he's very happy and impressed with her. And he also makes a suggestion that she, as I guess, as rich moneylenders do, that she stop necessarily collecting the money herself and instead see if she can find a Christian who's not uncomfortable working for Jews and have that person do the collection. And so she hires Wanda to then uh, include that as part of her responsibilities mm -hmm. and starts paying her more. And I think teaches her how to, how to read and write. Yes. Yeah. Which I thought was a really interesting touch. Mm -hmm. Wanda has, so Wanda has two brothers and initially there's a kind of indication that she doesn't really have that much of a relationship with her family, that she had loved her mother and her mother had died in childbirth. And uh, she really just associated essentially her younger siblings with this like constant pain that her mother was in through bearing these additional children. But her brother, Sergei is a, uh, attacked by the Staric in repayment, I guess, for having hunted animals that belonged to them. Mm -hmm. And so he's about to die, but she basically prays to her mom's magic tree. And that fixes him and also creates something of a kind of new alliance and kind of feeling of love and bonding between her and her brothers, Sergei and Stepan. They're always, they always seem to be worried that whatever they do, if they're helping each other out, then the father will retaliate in some way. He'll notice that, that I think in this case, she was giving her brother some extra goat milk because he was so ill. Yeah. And they were very, all of them were so worried the father would realize and come after them. So I think they, they have that bond from trying to protect each other from him. Yeah, and this is really increasingly comes up with the money, too, that uh, as she's being paid more, we realize that she's actually going to be putting some of it aside and not giving it to her father, 
because she's ideally hoping to basically escape at some point. Right. Miriam goes to visit her grandfather again, who starts presenting her to his wealthy family members and potentially portraying her as somebody who's actually at this point a candidate for marriage. Her mother, on the other hand, is saddened that she has had to harden herself, harden yourself to ice. And I actually had not noticed, by the way, the first time I read this book, how many references there are in the earlier part about Miriam being cold or like ice, Mm -hmm. which then obviously becomes relevant eventually. Right. Part of this is that she also then boasts about this, that she is able to turn silver into gold and says to her mother something along the lines of like, why are you so upset you have a daughter who can turn silver into gold? And then Miriam repeats it. Yeah. In her in her self-defense, as though it's a very good thing. Yeah, that's something that she's very proud of and that her mother sees very negatively in many ways, but that she does not. And there's definitely some interesting kind of gender roles happening here, which we can talk about more later. Great. The Staric Road follows them home, which is, I guess, a magic road that appears sometimes and means the Staric might show up and goes so far as, you know, as to her house. And they even at this point go so far as they actually hire Wanda's brother, Sergei, to basically stay at their house because they're nervous about the Staric and start paying them more. And they agree that at this point they're going to hide some of the money in order to be able to eventually run away. Miriam continues to have an even more striking ability to turn silver into gold. She has bought all these small trinkets and relatively cheap dresses from Vishnia and then ends up selling them for far more than they're worth. The Staric then have apparently noticed this boast, and that's what the, you know, following her around with this magic road was about, and leave her this pouch with six gold coins. Well, they, they're not really asking politely right there and they're not really asking politely they're they're saying do this or i think you'll die i think at that point is you you have to do this you know you give us no choice yeah or we give you no choice right i think at this point i'm not sure she actually like has much of a conversation it's just like implied that like if the staric leave you something like this this is clearly what you're supposed to do right right how you can't you can't really you can't refuse right so, and yeah, and this, this, so this debt, this uh, boast has clearly become dangerous, but she also is very able to take care of it. She goes to Isaac, who is a jeweler who, um, or yeah, who is supposed to marry her cousin Basia and brings the coins and he uses the coins to make a ring, which he's then able to sell to the Duke. And there's clearly something special about these coins. The still, these uh, silver starret coins are not just normal coins. We'll see that with the, right, we'll see that when they start being born. Yeah. They have something of an allure about them. And even when he's making the jewelry, it's clear that there's something unnatural about it. Uh, Increasingly, there are people, you know, gathering around and watching. And uh, as I said, the Duke, you know, buys this immediately. When Miriam's uh, on her way home, the Staric arrives for his purse. And I do like that she actually stands up to him to some extent and says, next time I'll need more time to be able to do this if you want to give me more silver she knows her worth yeah we then meet Irina, the daughter of the duke we learn that she's supposed to have had have inherited some sort of magic that her great grandmother her mother's great grandmother was raped by a staric knight and that they're supposed to be kind of magic in the family because of that but that already by the time of her mother it doesn't seem to have been very prominent in the family 
She does, however, immediately recognize that there is something special about this ring when she sees her father wearing it. The Starak appears for Miriam with a new purse, this time of 60 silver, which has to be turned into gold in three days, which is not a lot of turnaround time, especially because as it takes pains to add, part of this time is over Shabbat and she can't work. So she needs to finish it before Shabbat so she can pay the Starak. <laughs> There's a lot of those little tidbits in there that we'll talk about later. Yeah. And also tells her that if she turns silver to gold for him three times, or well, that she has to turn silver to gold for him three times in total, so this is the second, and that if she doesn't, she will be turned to ice, so not a great deal, but that if she succeeds, he will make her his queen, which also doesn't seem like that great of a deal. Right, it's kind of between a rock and a hard place here. Right. Obviously, she has to keep going, but it's not really for a prize that she wants, except for that the prize is not dying, I guess. (laughs) She brings the silver back to Isaac, who now makes a necklace, and and he and Miriam take it to the Duke directly. He buys it for 150 gold, so quite a lot of money, and asks that they then make the next batch of silver if they get it into a crown for his daughter. They then put this jewelry on Irina, who has this very special experience when she has it on of seeing herself in this kind of wintry realm. And her father clearly knows that there's some way in which, I guess, the Staric made jewelry or the jewelry made from Staric silver is bringing out something staric e in his daughter. Something ethereal, something yeah. magical. Yeah. And at this point informs her that she's going to need new dresses, she's going to get married, and that the Tsar is going to be here in three days, with the implication that she's going to, that he's going to try to marry her to the Tsar. She remembers the Tsar, and not positively. She mostly remembers that he was this creep who tortured squirrels that he had killed, and then basically after she says, you know, stop torturing them, tries to, like, starts, like, leaving dead squirrels for her all over the place when they were children. So. Not her first choice, maybe. Maybe not her first choice in a, in a partner. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> she is not necessarily super excited about this marriage, but also very much kind of realizes, all right, there's not really anything I can do. Miriam heads home. On route, her chariot driver, Oleg, tries to rob and murder her. But fortunately, I guess, the Tsarek arrives and temporarily freezes him, collects his gold, and at this point, I guess, he unfreezes Oleg, who is then just too freaked out to rob and murder her and just takes her home. However, the next morning, when Miriam sends Wanda to to pay him for his services, it turns out that he is frozen and dead, which, okay. I actually, I read it a little bit differently. I thought that he was... And this is, I guess, my interpretation. But I, I thought the star kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is. Im- like ensorcelled him. Right. Like sets him up as a puppet, freezes yeah. him in order to work through him. And then the Stark always knows that he's going to die at the end of this. And he's just using him to literally transport Miriam home. I think that's true that he's always planning on killing him. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I guess I wasn't sure if reading it, if he was literally just being like puppeted by the Staric when he takes her home, or if he is genuinely still sort of himself, but also just like very freaked out. Right. They kind of make much of the fact that he like drops her off and then just kind of runs off and does not speak to her. Right. I thought that was because he was already taken, his body was taken over by the Staric. Right. <laughs> Maybe that's a little yeah. bit of a, of a, of a fan, fantic, 
fantasy interpretation of it, but... Yeah, but yeah, definitely possible. Yeah, I thought he was just like, I need to like not be involved in this whole situation. Which is fair. <laughs> but it's a warning. It's a warning to Miriam yeah. and oh, her family. Yeah. And this is something that Wanda takes notice of because she has she knows about this Staric silver that's being left for Miriam. And she and Sergei realize that their plan essentially to be able to kind of collect this money and get away safely from their father does also ultimately depend on Miriam's safety and on there being some kind of plan in place. And at this point, Wanda eventually tells Miriam about the truth about her father, the fact that her father is abusive and drunk and that she is, and, you know, indicates that she has been hiding the money and is planning on being able to get away from him. And Miriam does come up with a plan to basically make sure, okay, my parents are going to keep paying you and this is how you can continue to work for some period of time even if I disappear because she is increasingly concerned about this as the Staric keeps appearing. Miriam returns to Vishnia not necessarily escaping the Staric but making sure I guess that she'll have plenty of time without having to worry about making the journey when he comes to bring her the silver and that she'll have plenty of time to make sure that gets transformed. He arrives, delivers the installment she protests at this point that she could not make silver into gold in his kingdom, that her abilities are very much centered on this world and a very particular kind of skill and that, you know, involves markets and things that are in the normal world. And he tells her that a power claimed and challenged and thrice carried out is true. The proving makes it so, indicating that there is something magical happening with her right and I think that's a reference not only to the fact that she's changing money three times but also that they boasted about it three times so I guess the grandfather said she can turn silver into gold the mother then repeated it and then Miriam herself also repeated it so I think they say it three times so this this uh, number three thrice carried out it was also challenged and claimed three times yeah there's there's a lot of threes which is a very Mm -hmm. standard fairy tale sort of number She brings the silver once again to Isaac, who makes the crown, they take it to the Duke, and it is given to Irina. And Miriam at this point feels this moment of connection with her, saying, for a moment I felt her a sister, our lives in the hands of others. She wasn't likely to have any more choice in the matter than I did. So sensing that Irina is not necessarily pleased with her lot in this whole situation. She goes home once again with huge amounts of gold with this crown having been sold since some of it is for the Staric, some of it Isaac keeps, but then there is part that is her profit as well. She tells him the whole story and I find it very entertaining that the grandfather basically responds by, eh, there are worse possible marriages. Right, right. He's very pragmatic about it. Yeah, and I also like that she appreciates this as the fact that her that her grandfather reacts in this way makes it seem a marriage like any other Mm -hmm. it makes it seem almost something normal as opposed to this weird otherworldly compact that she's gotten herself into and can't get out it makes it seem like it's part of the kind of normal universe that this is a match like any other to be considered thoughtfully Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for her to accept it now yeah and i do think especially in light of the ending as well, which we'll get to. That's an interesting choice. The Tsar arrives to see Irina, he is, or well, to visit uh, Irina's father, the Duke, and is very surprised to hear that the Duke is actually planning on presenting his daughter as a serious candidate for marriage, since basically she's not rich, especially, and has never had the reputation for being especially beautiful. 
she puts on the assorted, uh, she puts on the ring for the first night of dinner, which is not something that she is superbly excited about. Meanwhile, Isaac and Basia's betrothal is finalized, which is he is able to do in part because he's made a ton of money also off this whole deal with the Starak Silver. The Starak Lord arrives for his gold and also takes Miriam, despite her continuing to protest that this marriage is ridiculous and does not make any sense. And he's seems sort of annoyed about it, but very insistent on going through with it. Right, because he made a deal and he... In his world, you absolutely cannot get out of any sort of bargain deal that you make. It is stronger than law in his world. Yeah, there's a lot about oaths that increasingly comes up as we see more of the Staric. Mernatius then meets Irina, and even without actually seeing the ring, is pretty much in, uh, seems immediately intrigued by her. The implication at this point is that his interest is coming from the fact that she says, I don't want to marry you, and that he finds this interesting. As we will see, there is another reason that he is immediately on board and basically asks to marry her without even seeing the kind of full set of jewelry. He only uh, sees her in the ring and he barely even looks at the ring. The magic of the ring apparently doesn't seem to affect him. Miriam's parents, meanwhile, because the Staric have this magic that you don't quite remember anything that happened in connection with the Staric, or you don't remember it properly. Although some people seem to remember better than others for reasons that are not always completely clear. Maybe younger people? I'd have to reread it and see if that's true. My theory about this, which never actually is confirmed or not confirmed, my theory is that Wanda's mother is actually of Staric blood, which makes sense with a number of other things that then happen with regard to the dead mother, and also would explain why Wanda and her brother seem a little better at remembering things in connection with the Staric than Miriam's parents do. That's a very sound theory, especially because of that tree that she seems to be able to communicate through and that as we'll see, becomes almost a portal between the two worlds. Yeah, so that's my theory, but they never actually confirm, or, or for that matter, deny that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we certainly know that there are people like Arena's mother who are you know of Staric background, uh, generally because the Staric kind of showed up and raped people. And so it's very possible that this is another case of that. Mm-hmm. Wanda is very much also enjoying her time with Miriam's family and feels some amount of guilt about this, that she feels like she's to some extent taking Miriam's place and uh, is enjoying that, but also uh, feels guilty that does this mean I don't want Miriam to come back? And it's also, I think, the beginning of a really nice bond that we're seeing between Wanda and Miriam's parents. We see, I think, that Wanda even wears Miriam's boots when it starts getting cold and I think wears her jacket. So literally she is taking a little bit of of Miriam's place. But at the same time, she's getting a pair of good solid boots and a nice warm jacket for winter. So she's incredibly grateful. And she's getting, you know, Miriam's share of the food. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it's allowing her to have a place and a family in a way that she she's never had parents, essentially, because her mother died when she was pretty young. And her father is awful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. He's so awful. She loves going to work and escape him every day and she's she's right. working hard in this house and yeah. she's doing manual labor and her brother is doing manual labor for them and it's much more enjoyable than being at home 
Yeah. And we have not explicitly talked about this yet, but the other element of that also is that throughout it, it is indicated that anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism is a real thing in this world, just like it was in real early modern, I don't know. Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah, Eastern Europe yeah, somewhere. Eastern yeah. Europe somewhere. And so that it is also especially striking that, you know, essentially her family or her father is so terrible that she would rather as this, you know, Polish peasant girl or Ukrainian peasant girl basically work for Jews than have anything to do with her own family. And it takes her a long time to be able to accept them and their rituals and their Jewishness. But by the end of the book, certainly she's she doesn't even care at all that they're Jewish. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. She hears uh, he blessings in Hebrew and asks, is this magic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. She goes home for, you know, the day or night or whatever, and learns that her father is planning on marrying her to Lucas, son of Caius. Caius? I am not, no, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce this name, who is the maker of uh, Krupnik, which is some sort of hard liquor. And basically that he's just selling her off for alcohol. Kajas, for his part, seems to have figured out that Wanda is being paid by Miriam, and that's essentially his interest in all of this, that he thinks, okay, if I get this girl to marry my son, who is working for the moneylender, then the moneylender will forgive some amount of my debts. And we've seen him before that he clearly was having some issues with that regard, and that he was basically trying to pass off basically somehow bad bottles of Krupnik in exchange for his debt repayment and... That at some point she told him, I will no longer accept goods. You have to actually give me cash. So he clearly is having some issues and uh, thinks that part of the solution is this marriage. Wanda says no. And her father beats her. And uh, her brother Stefan stands up for her. And the father attacks him too. At this point, Kajas and Lucas are not on board anymore with this whole situation. Uh, Lucas says he doesn't want to marry somebody who doesn't want him. And they also basically realizing how much, you know, violencers in this family are essentially like, we don't really want to get involved in this. The money isn't worth it. Sergei comes in and uh, basically they're all, the children are all fighting their father. And Sergei ends up basically kind of shoving him, or I guess he kind of falls over Stepan, the youngest brother, and kind of falls into the oven, and a boiling pot is knocked over him, and he dies. Which, good riddance. Right. Once again. Right. And it wasn't, it's, it's clear that it's, it's somewhat of an accident and somewhat not an accident because he is pushed, but not with the intent of killing him, I believe. Right. Or he doesn't know, the son doesn't know his own strength, something like that. That he, I don't think he's, he's murderous in this, and I think that's, that becomes clear a little bit later. But it's, it is self-defense. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if the father wasn't trying to kill them, he was uh, you know, savagely beating them, mm -hmm. it seems. And so, yeah, it's clearly is self-defense or defense of, you know, siblings. And so it's clearly an understandable killing right. from our perspective, certainly. They realize, however, that since Kajos saw the first part of it, he's going to go tell everyone that Sergei murdered his father and uh, that everything is going to get taken away and he'll be executed or whatever the plan is. They decide to go fetch the money and uh, Sergei and Wanda will run off because uh, they both fear that they could be blamed for the murder and then send and decide they're going to send Stepan to Miriam's family who are the Mandelstams at this point. So I 
realize I should mention their names since we're going to keep discussing them without Miriam being present at times. So can't keep calling them Miriam's <laughs> mom and dad. <laughs> they send Stepan first to the tree. They, or they go to talk to the tree with their mom. And the tree gives Stepan a magic nut, which seems like essentially a special thing that he gets because she's done things before for Wanda and for Sergei that for Wanda, she got her this job, which enabled her to kind of get out. And it's, I guess, because of a wish on the mom tree that Sergei was saved from uh, being from his like staric ice disease. Hmm. I didn't see it that I didn't see it that way that now it's Stepan's turn to have some help. Yeah, that like he gets something because the other two siblings have already gotten something. They then decide they're going to head to Miriam's grandfather in Vishtia. We then go back to Mernatius and Arena, who get married quickly on the third day of his visit. And once again, it is emphasized that he is not lured by her magic jewelry, that the father says, oh, I'm giving you the jewelry as his dowry, as her dowry. And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever, I don't care. That clearly, for some reason, he desperately wants to marry Irina, regardless. Irina learns that while she's wearing her fancy jewelry, she can cross through the mirror into this kind of snowy, wintry forest. And so that she can do this when she's wearing, I guess, any two pieces of the jewelry. So she goes into, she goes through the mirror, she crosses through, and while she's there, Marnatius comes into her bedchamber and is extremely violent in his efforts to search for her in a way that is even then quickly described as inhuman in terms of the kind of way he's talking and shrieking. And when she's watching from the mirror, she's then able to see him have a conversation that reveals that, in fact, there is something inhuman going on, that he is having a conversation with the fireplace, and that this conversation reveals that he is possessed by this fire demon who is what's giving him his magic powers that he has, and that he specifically is hungry for Irina and wants to eat her. You're not sure exactly why Irina. No, he references her coolness. <laughs> in the, like, She's cool so sense, cool. Not, like, in the cold sense, not the like, she is awesome. I think she's not, she's very not cool. No. <laughs> So I think I think it doesn't quite indicate this super clearly at this point, but I think ultimately it's made clear that it's uh, his recognizing these her staric blood that the staric are cold in a way that kind of quenches the thirst of this fire demon creature, and uh, that he therefore wants to eat her, and that's why he insisted on this whole marriage in the first place. Which all seems like a very bad plan, but it is very clear that neither the demon nor Mernatius are good at politics. So that's a good thing she can escape into the mirror, though. Yes. She returns to the room once he's gone. And he really like he rips the room apart and then restores it with magic help uh, with the demon helping him. And so she returns to the room. Uh, She figures out, I guess, at this point that she can escape using any two of the jewels at any given time. And she also is especially concerned about what the plan is, because uh, from having overheard this conversation, she knows that in order to be able to control her, the demon and Mernatius are planning on getting her nurse, Magretta, to uh, be collected, you know, as a to use against her, essentially. Miriam arrives in the Staric lands and is crowned in an episode which is apparently very embarrassing for her new husband. 
And essentially everybody is smirking at them and thinks that this whole marriage is ridiculous. And she manages to dispel the smirks by turning her crown from silver into gold, which is a good display. Although the downside is that it is now way heavier. (laughs) He apparently was going to just poison her immediately upon marrying her, since I guess he technically didn't say he wouldn't do that, but changes his mind. So that's nice. Yeah. I find a lot of the Starek's motivations unclear for a lot of the book a lot of the book right and it's not just me okay i was also confused yeah he starts stripping since apparently they have to have sex since those are her rights even though neither of them clearly have any interest in this whatsoever she suggests that in exchange for her rights she will instead ask him questions which he must answer truthfully and they kind of haggle down to uh, she can ask three questions per night and needs somewhat decently full answers, and she can never ask his name, since it is indicated that this kind of fairy realm thing that names have power. Her last question is what it will take for the Staric to let her go, to which the answer is apparently nothing. So, not boding well. Why did he, do we know at this point, why did he even put marriage into the bargain that he made in the first place? You, you know, you make this gold for me and then you will become my wife, as a, as a, almost a punishment, not a punishment for her. It seems to be because he needs the turning into gold thing or wants the turning into gold thing. Right. But then he wouldn't want to kill her at all. He would. Right. He should be very grateful to her that she's so useful to him. Yes. There's an odd combination of him valuing her and not valuing her and then coming to value her more. And it is all... Again, very complicated, and I do not always understand the motivation, his motivations. And I'm not sure if it's that we're not supposed to because he's inscrutable and inhuman, or if it's a flaw in the book, or what. Right. But I wish we'd understood a little bit more of him. Right. Me too. This, this whole scene I was, I was confused by. But... Stepan then goes to the Mandelstams and tells them the full story about their father. They promise to let him stay as long as he wants, even forever, which is very sweet. Arena spends her night, uh, her first, her wedding night, uh, basically sleeping in furs in front of the mirror in case she has to take off again. And the next morning it goes ahead and goes to pray basically as a kind of like, okay, I can get out of my room, but go to somewhere where there'll be people around then. And also basically says something like, with a demon after me, I guess it pays to be devout. It can't hurt. Marnatius is very surprised to see her. And we also learn more at this point about the various kind of royal politics surrounding his family, and uh, in particular, the mysterious circumstances surrounding his uh, succession. So his mother was a witch. She was burned at the stake. His uh, father had a son from a previous marriage who was expected to become king. And then his father and brother both conveniently died of some sort of illness, which at this point, it's pretty clear that the demon probably had a hand in. Mm -hmm. Before dinner, she kind of sneaks up and uh, basically kind of collects some food and then goes back through the mirror. Mernatius comes in again and chats with the fire more. And I guess this is when there's more of the explanation that he says, she is like the ones of winter, cold and sweet, like a well she runs so deep. I will drink a long time before I come to the end of her. Which is kind of gross. But yeah. The Staric nearly like forgets that he's married this mortal woman and has to give her dinner. And he also, but he finally like gives her dinner and then also gives her servants whom she names Fleck and Sop. I didn't look up if they were actual Polish or Ukrainian or Russian terms. I don't know if you did, but I think one means spot, beauty spot, and Sop means braid. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't actually look it up either. But, but, but at least it meant something to the author of the book who decided that these words meant the, 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 those two things. I'm assuming she got them from somewhere. Right, right. I guess. And she goes to work at turning silver into gold and then also gets to see more of the Staric realm. There's a whole thing with the servants that they won't answer questions because she's made questions part of this bargaining thing with her husband. But when they communicate to each other, they speak normally. Yes. Right, okay. She can essentially only give them commands as opposed to asking them to do, like, as opposed to asking them things. Of course. I find it weirdly hysterical that she insists on making sure that she can still observe Shabbat properly by making sure that she can then get this magic mirror that tells her when it's sunrise and sunset in her own world so she can keep track of the days. Yes, because in the Staric world, they don't seem to have the same kind of daily, nightly schedule. Right. And that she kind of informs them like, well, I mean, if you don't do this for me, then I'll have to treat every day like it's Shabbat and never do any work. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which she then kind of goes on to say, like, I mean, that's not really true. I, you know, I like wouldn't actually die rather than. Right. Which is that's a big question in religious law. But I don't know if we're getting into all of that, but super fascinating little tidbit in there. Yeah, it's interesting that it does uh, come up. And of course, that she also takes advantage in a way that I think is fun of the fact that he does not know anything about Jewish law and has no idea if what she's saying is true or not. Yes, so. yes, she's she's very smart about that. Yeah. Wanda and Sergei on the road are trapped in a snowstorm, don't make it to Vishnia, but find this mystery cottage, which is filled with food and is very nice. The cottage will continue to be important. Miriam observes Shabbat, which... It's actually a very sad scene because she very much emphasizes how lonely it is uh, to observe the Sabbath without her family. And she recites what she remembers from the Torah portions to herself, thinking, yeah. thinking about her father reciting it to her. She can imagine his voice. And kind of these connections with the stories in some ways, too, that I think at this point she, uh, she kind of thinks about uh, Joseph in Egypt and connects that to her own plight. There are a few biblical references in here. Yeah. That would be fun to go back through and look for those. Yeah. She also then learns from the Staric Lord that he has deliberately brought winter early to her world, which is not a good thing, and that he is, however, is very pleased with himself. She goes out driving with her servants and then sees two people wrapped in heavy furs and one a queen. We might say even instead of an early winter, continues the winter, because I think it's yeah, a, it true. becomes, I think it's still June at the end of the book, and it's, there's snowstorms. And even in Eastern Europe, that's not a normal winter. It's very Game of Thrones that just uh, the kind of long, the kind of never ending winter is coming. Yeah. (laughs) Right. We go back to Arena, who I think you can already kind of guess at this point is probably the person that that Miriam has seen in the Staric realm. But we go back to find out how that might have happened in that we see that she's back. Uh, she, uh, She kind of was in her kind of through the mirror world she returns Mernatius slept in her room and is super shocked once again when she just shows up and he tries to force her to tell him where she goes she turns out to have learned some politics from her dad and makes some suggestions about how he should maybe be wary of murdering him and murdering her and 
makes some notes about his family and his enemies and the state of his kingdom and his throne that seem to not be things that he has thought of before. Right. He's a little bit like a go with the flow kind of person. You know, I'll do what this person tells me to do and doesn't really think for himself. I don't think at all in the book. Does he really? Not really. Except maybe choosing her, but that was done by the demon. So I'm not sure any of his choices are really his own decisions. They're really not. So yeah, and we'll see an explanation for that to some extent in a little bit. But I think that making him then a point of view character was something that I was very surprised when I first saw it, because that will happen in a few chapters. But that I'm glad they didn't, they actually like explain a lot about him. It's he's an interesting character. Right. Irina and uh, um, and Marius collect Magretta, who does immediately recognize that something is wrong. And Irina takes her through the mirror before Mernatius can return. That indicates, perhaps uh, moving forward, where they probably are. In the absence of both Wanda and Miriam, Stepan begins to take over the collections, which uh, the Mandelstam's Miriam's parents are very kind of saddened about in a lot of ways. It's really interesting the extent to which they actually seem to see money lending negatively. Hmm. Her Miriam's parents. Yeah, that they very much seem to see it as something that is requiring this kind of coldness or hardness, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Which is actually a choice that I have mixed feelings about. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about yeah, it. actually, now that, now that I think about it. <laughs> but yeah. it does keep them warm and safe and healthy. Yeah, and there is a kind of odd hypocrisy in some way that on the one hand, they're certainly not refusing or you know not benefiting from the kind of fruits of these labors, but that at the same time, they see them as being wrong in some way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, are clearly surviving and comfortable because of it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Wanda and Sergei are continue life in their mystery cottage. And meanwhile, Miriam recognizes Irina. In the Staric world. Yeah, in the Staric world. So that is where her silver has taken her, is into the Staric world. So Miriam brings uh, Irina and Magretta to shelter in a house which... I'm pretty sure I did realize on the first go-through that this was the same house as the one that Wanda and Sergei were in, but that is sort of somehow both in the normal world and the Staric world. And it's a little bit separated by time, it seems, that they would, they would you know, make porridge in one in the, in the mortal world, and then they would eat it in the Staric world, but then they would also have extra, and the, they, it would be a little mixed up with how they played with time here, I think, and... You know, they would yeah. they would share supplies, but then you would get different supplies would appear and, and magically appear. Um, so I think there is a third element there, actually, where they're not it's not perfectly aligned. But there's another third person or spirit or figure who is helping them both out. But maybe that was yeah. just me. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure how much is just that there's somebody else involved or if it's just something about the inherent magic of the house that it has this connection but with this time lag but yeah but uh it is i think pretty apparent at this point that there is something special about this cottage and that it is kind of straddling these bounds between worlds irina explains to miriam that the czar is possessed by a demon who wants to eat her miriam you know at this point with all that's going on is uh you know just very chill about this i think she laughs at first she says not out of right. not out of humor but out of bitterness <laughs> Right, yes. And she first jokes, ah, ha ha, let's bring the fire monster and the ice monster together and make us both widows, which, you know, is kind of the dream, arguably, in the Middle Ages. <laughs> well, yeah, we could talk about that. 
And after she makes this joke, they kind of realize actually this isn't a bad idea and wonder if they could essentially get the demon to agree to let Irina go in exchange for the star at King with the ultimate hope being that somehow they'll manage to basically have them either both destroy each other or have the fire demon defeat the star at King and then they'll only have the one to worry about or something along those lines. That's true. I didn't think about that. What would they do if the demon king, if the demon won? They don't really have a great plan, <laughs> honestly, assuming either of them is like 100% triumphant. Then they just have one less beast to deal with. <laughs> right, right. It's something. They, they, think of a, they think of a plan. Yeah. And it is a difficult situation, an arguably no-win situation <laughs> in some ways. So, <laughs> And they are dealing with like extremely powerful magical creatures. So the idea that maybe they'll sort of cancel each other out and kill each other is, is not the worst mm -hmm. idea. That's worth a try. Yeah. They make a plan that they're going to gather in Vishnia and uh, try to lure the men to then destroy one another. I love that Miriam wonders if she's legally married and suggests that I guess when I get home, I'll ask her rabbi. <laughs> I mean, if we want to get into the technicality of it, she's not legally married in Jewish law. No. She certainly, I mean, she hasn't had any kind of marriage ceremony and nor has she had any sexual relations right. with him and she didn't consent to anything. No, I mean, they're actually definitely not legally married, according to Jewish law. But in the Stark world, they are. And that's the one that matters for her right now. Right. Yeah. But I think it's important to her in terms of how she relates to him that her, she does not technically have a legal bond to her that she recognizes, which I think is interesting. It is funny. She does refer to him in, in when it's her first person narrative as my husband. Yeah, that's true. She's very unclear as, as to what to do with him, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I think to some person, and she, it's also, she even, I think, relatively early kind of accepts this possessive of him when they're kind of, I guess, betrothed, according to him, without her exactly consenting to that either, mm. that she starts referring to him as my Staric. Mm. It also could be a little bit sarcastic. My yeah. husband. Yeah. Facetious. Yeah. yeah. And she doesn't really have anything else to call him because she doesn't know his name. Oh, that's true. Because names are a thing. That's very true. And she never, and she doesn't do what she does with her servants. So Fleck and Sop, and there's also a chauffeur, her her driver. Mm -hmm. She never gives him a, a, a nickname. That sounds like I uh, sounds like chauffeur. Right, right. <laughs> I, I, did, I did I, not realize that until we said it out loud. I was wondering if that's deliberate. Oh, I was thinking about the Hebrew verb that doesn't right. have to do with driving, but that then I in English it does sound a lot like it. That's very clever. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I didn't look up. I actually don't know offhand what the etymology is and if that would be like basically the same word in like German or Yiddish or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Probably. So it makes sense as a connection. It would make a lot of sense. From. It would make sense. Yeah. She's definitely a smart writer. I got that sense yeah. right away and I'm excited to read more of her books if she yeah. writes like this with these little tidbits. Yeah, definitely. And as I said, her other book, Uprooted, I think is really great. There's this Odd connection between them in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. She asks some more questions. She learns that the house that there, that Arena and Magretta are staying in, was built by a witch on basically the corner around the border between the worlds. That explains something about why it's able to exist simultaneously in both of these worlds. And also the fact that it's built by a witch indicates 
it's not clear if the witch is still there in some way and acting as an intermediary and connecting them or if it's just kind of leftover magic that is making the house work in the way that it does. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I like to think about this witch still being involved as some sort of overseer, but I'd have to read it through again and see if that holds true. Which I think would be especially interesting because, uh, I don't know, there's kind of references here and there to Baba Yaga, who is obviously an extremely important figure in Eastern European kind of fairy tales, essentially. And uh, she's associated with having a kind of cottage in the woods. And Baba Yaga is also a figure who is kind of more explicitly referenced in Uprooted. So mm. it's interesting to kind of think about if that is a connection that we are supposed to make. Mm-hmm. Irina takes responsibility essentially at this point as being in fact the Zarina and that being something that matters, that, you know, it's my job to protect people. She returns, she finds Mernatius and... At this point, you're all you're kind of almost feeling bad for her already um, in that he is clearly just so overwhelmed by this whole situation. And she points out that the Staric are bringing the winter and suggests this plan that they feed the Staric king to the demon and also takes advantage of the fact that he knows nothing about politics to manipulate him. She suggests marrying Vasilia, who is the daughter of some nobleman that he was supposed to marry to one of his cousins, basically to prevent her from marrying this person named Casimir. And he, of course, doesn't ask because he knows nothing about politics who Casimir is supposed to marry when the answer is actually that Irina is going to hopefully have him killed and then marry Casimir and they would rule. Uh, Not because she wants to, but because he's powerful and not possessed by a fire demon. And at this point, she does say, my expectations for a husband had lowered. (laughs) I think he's he's a pretty bad guy, too. (laughs) He's not even like an average guy. I think I think there is some reference to him being not a nice guy either. Yeah, he's a jerk who's about her father's age. Mm -hmm. She clearly has no interest in marrying him, but that she recognizes that that's the good political move in this situation. And I do really like her political acumen Mm -hmm. and her awareness of uh, what her options are. I mean, she very much realizes that she can't just kill her husband and then just rule independently as Zoya. Yeah, yeah. She's realistic. Yeah. She is able to basically just overwhelm him with so much actual explanation that when she tells him that they have to go to Vishnia to her father's house, he's just like, ugh, yeah, sure, whatever. And oh, and meanwhile, uh, Miriam is getting the Staric king to Vishnia by basically telling him that she wants to be at and dance at her cousin Basia's wedding. And they agree that if she turns uh, three storerooms worth of silver into gold, then he will escort her to this wedding. So that is the plan. Meanwhile, back in the the sunlit world, as it is called, Miriam's parents sort of remember that she exists. And they all plan to go to Vishnia with Stepan, you know, hoping that, okay, we're going to go to Vishnia. We're going to find my siblings and her parents hoping that they will find her since the last they heard is that she's going to Vishnia. Miriam then changes the first storeroom. The Stark is even half polite about it. But she realizes that she is not going to get all of this done in time, that changing silver into gold at this volume is a decent amount of work and the storerooms are really massive and she probably should have bargained more, but she doesn't. And I think at this point she has to, she has to touch each coin individually, which takes a little bit. She has to like hold it in her hand and touch each coin. And these, the rooms are absolutely filled with coins. Yeah. And she recognizes that she has to touch each coin individually. If she misses, you know, that she realizes that if she misses one, that that could be extremely dangerous and it's easier to work slowly and rather than work quickly and then have to check her work after. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it really is taking a massive amount of time. And I think she realizes that she can kind of pass her hand very slowly over the coins 
And that goes a little bit quicker, but still it is time consuming work and she does not have an unlimited mm-hmm. amount of time. She then semi-accidentally makes a bargain with her servants and agrees that in exchange for them helping her, uh, basically she comes up with the idea that the way around this is that he said, change all the silver in my storerooms into gold. And she says, she comes up with the idea, okay, let's start taking it out of the storerooms and then there will be less to change, which is pretty clever. It's pretty good. I did not think it would work. Well, I'll say that, but, but it's a good plan. It's a good plan and it felt very in line with the way that the Staric do bargains, which is very much coming from fairy lore. And the fact that it is a very much a kind of letter of the bargain rather than the spirit of the bargain, which is something that in this kind of story, we see both fairy kind of like fey creatures and humans taking advantage of that, that uh, they can, that they do things that are not in the spirit of the bargain as a way of kind of getting out of it essentially, or being able to succeed uh, at a task that is impossible. Mm So she then kind of makes this bargain sort of accidentally with her servants that in exchange for them helping her, that she will turn their silver into gold. And once she talks to the Staric Lord, she realizes that by doing this, she has made them her bondsmen and her bondsmen and bondswomen, which is something that ties them to her to the extent that if she fails, they could be killed, which would not be the case just as her servants, but also essentially as being then the queen's bondsmen, if they're successful would make them basically part of the nobility. Mm-hmm. Chauffeur and Sop had been afraid, but done this pretty willingly. And Fleck was much more hesitant. And because of this, Miriam then asks them if they have children. And it turns out that Fleck has a daughter and that this is why she was so afraid. Because of course, if she and her daughter, lo- I mean, she's afraid for her daughter essentially, because her daughter would also be killed if this all went down badly. Mm-hmm. The Mandelstans and Stepan find Sergei in the woods and they go back with Wanda briefly to the cottage. There's this whole thing with like a mattress and a coverlet that Wanda and Magretta are kind of sewing together in a way that sort of comes they have to They have to finish it or else they can't leave. Yeah, there's a lot about this kind of like relationship with this cottage, which does also make me think that there's something about the witch being in some way, I don't know, there or connected or something. Yeah. I, I, th- I always thought of it as like the spirit of their mother somehow. Yeah. But some, something like that. Or someone's mother is there still watching over them. Right. <laughs> or using it when they're not there. If it's somehow also in, a, in this third dimension, well, fourth dimension. If it's some fifth dimension, I don't know. We're in a lot of <laughs> dimensions, I think. But <laughs> if there's someone else using it and watching over them and like yeah, something like that. Something magical and cool yeah. and something they can't see. And I do like that. And I actually do think it's, interesting that there's a lot that is not 100% explained in this book. It's sometimes frustrating and I want more explanation, mm-hmm. but it is, I think, in some ways also a cool choice. Yeah. Miriam manages just barely to change all the silver into gold, uh, mostly because the third storeroom has been almost entirely emptied. And he recognizes, obviously, that she has, you know, come up with this workaround, but agrees to keep his side of the bargain, that he made this bargain and she technically fulfilled it. And... Uh, also, you know, she explains this whole situation and he acknowledges, yep, that these are now uh, your bondsmen. Uh, they are no longer servants. And he agrees to stop the flow of time so that basically she can get dressed up and also change their silver into gold before leaving, which of course she wants to do because she is not anticipating necessarily coming back. 
since she's going to murder her husband. He must respect her a little bit more after this episode because she's showing that she can hold her own in the Stark being able to make deals the same way that they do. Yeah, this I think is really a turning point in their relationship, at least from his perspective, in that the fact that she has managed to do this, I think, gives him a very different sense of her abilities, that he was essentially married her because of her gift of turning silver into gold, which was useful, but did not respect her as having otherwise kind of skills or intelligence, and now does. Irina continues to participate in politics and finds a suitable groom for Vasilia, and uh, does begin to reflect on uh, Mernatius's own difficulties given the position that he was placed in as the son of this woman who is condemned as a witch, and uh, does begin to, to some extent, feel sorry for him, but of course also emphasizes the fact that he made choices which involved killing people. So she's sympathetic, but not that sympathetic. This then leads into our first Mernatius point of view chapter, which I was really surprised to see this chapter the first time I read this book. Mernatius is clearly just very annoyed about this whole situation. He is confused about why everybody thinks his wife is gorgeous and interesting and uh, mournfully anticipates that he is now stuck with her, that everyone's going to be happy with him because everyone's going to really like her as a ruler and uh, that eventually the two of them will produce an heir and then he'll probably get murdered. Yeah, it sounds like a a nice plan. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't seem to really be trying to do anything to stop this. No, he, I think he thinks he's very powerless. Yeah, there's, there's very much an emphasis as we start to get his perspective on his powerlessness and on his passivity. Right. That he's aware of the danger he's in, but he's not doing anything to fight anything, really. The demon agrees to this bargain that they will um, have the demon, that the demon will consume the Staric Lord and that in exchange, he will not harm Arena or, or her or hers. Mm-hmm. But she refuses to take any gift in exchange, any kind of more binding um, connection with the demon, which is a good call, since we've seen a lot about how bargains are important and a bad yes. idea. Yes. They are brought into a kind of wedding chamber together or a, or a kind of chamber together and are basically pretend to have sex for the benefit of those outside. He starts weeping fervently. She is also like a little turned on for a second. And there's <laughs> some stuff happening with that. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe she's just confused. <laughs> I mean, it's just sympathy mixed with empathy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's all, it's, it's weird. It's a weird relationship. She's still very much planning to, yeah, yeah. she's still very much planning to murder her. But there's this bit where he's where she's like, I remember how it felt when he like touched my thigh and yeah, I think, I think she's very confused. She's clearly having a hard time. She's like 17. I think she also wishes that it were someone else who were doing this Yeah. with, I mean, she wishes she were with someone else physically. Yeah. And the fact that she's stuck with him is very difficult for her to accept. Yeah. And especially of course, because there's still, you know, he's possessed by a demon and. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. And that as far as she knows, this is a choice that he made. Mernatius also keeps trying to draw her and then show the picture to other people. He, I guess, is immune to this Staric silver charm that is laid upon her and doesn't understand why everyone thinks she's so gorgeous, basically. And she's, she's even not that beautiful unless she's wearing this jewelry. Right. She's sort of right. plain and normal looking, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, people, and that's how he sees her. Yeah, that's how he sees her. Other people look at the picture and... Uh, 
are very and are very confused in a lot of ways that they clearly, I think, recognize to some extent that when they look at the picture, they don't see what they see when they see her. But they also acknowledge that the picture is a good likeness. So it's it's interesting that uh, there's this kind of way in which he's sort of trying to get to the bottom of this magic and it's it's working in interesting ways. Her father also looks at the picture and says that it makes her look like her mother, which is interesting. Hmm. And we do have this like bit earlier, um, which I think I forgot to mention, that he apparently had genuinely been in love with her mother and had married her without a dowry. Yeah. Miriam speaks with her bondsmen and women and changes their gold and also gives a Flex daughter a name. Uh, there's this whole thing that her, the father of the child had refused to acknowledge the girl as his and uh, therefore not given her a name and... I guess now he's changed his mind and would do that, but then Fleck would have to marry him and she doesn't want to do that because he's this like shit who didn't acknowledge his own kid 10 years ago when she was born. Miriam then gives the girl her true name, which is Rebecca Bat Fleck. So I like that this like star kid has a Hebrew name now. Yeah, yeah, traditional Hebrew name. Yep. Again, it would be great to go through and look at the biblical references again. Yeah, definitely. See how they match up. Yeah, it would also be interesting. I'm, I'm not sure if... Rebecca is supposed to be biblically significant as a choice or if it's just presented as oh this is a common name but yeah the Staric indicates then while they're en route to our realm that he has not properly valued her and that he regrets it and kisses her hand she is very confused by this entire situation it's also indicated that her turning the silver into gold is what enables him or helps him to make this winter right it's confusing and i i always tell my students not to be embarrassed when they don't understand something or when they have to reread a section more than once and i found i'm, I'm embarrassed i had to read the section more than once so i i think right i think her change her actual changing silver to gold the fact that they have so much gold then lengthens the winter so she caused yeah. the winter, not him. Yeah, and it's something about taking light out of the one realm into their realm the... so that that makes winter last longer. Something about a mountain. <laughs> I find the magic system a little confusing, to be honest. I, I agree. But anyway, <laughs> she's very upset by this because she now realizes that it was her physical actions that is making the winter worse for her, her family and her people back in the sunlit world. Yeah, which very much makes her on board extra with killing her husband. Irina and Lisar get ready. She has this dress and he makes her dress into something much more elaborate than it had originally been. Uh, there's this indication at some point that he basically, because every now and then the demon would just destroy all of his every item of clothing that he was wearing, that he just basically started to put around this rumor that he was this like, fashionista who would never wear the same out the same outfit twice and that this was then the explanation for if my like really nice pair of boots disappear it's not because a demon like burned like burned Thrashed up my them. body and destroyed all of my clothing it's because like oh i can't wear those again right of course um, well, you can't wear the same thing twice right. I mean. right so he now is like okay so arita has to like follow this because she's nice arita now that she also cannot wear the same thing twice I think this is the only actually clever thing that I see the Tsar do in this whole book. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's like bits here and there where you can see that he is strategizing. There's the clothing and there's also the fact that he, I guess, has a reputation of being like not interested in sex. And it seems that this really is because he is trying to avoid 
having any kind of sexual or romantic relationship because it seems to be the case that if anybody like that if he's with anybody alone essentially the demon's probably going to eat them Mm. and so he's basically just like actively trying to avoid anything that would you know put him in a situation where he would be then alone with these people and that he was supposed to have sex with and it explains his reluctance to become emotionally attached to anyone yeah definitely Miriam and the Staric arrive and dance the Hora at her cousin's wedding, <laughs> which is, there's just these moments of traditional Judaism and the Staric Lord, which I just find hysterical. Yes. I just imagine his like blonde head, like poking up over all these like, like Jewish families, like dancing around. And he's like this tall, like really pale. I don't really know what he looks like. I don't remember exactly what they say, but I imagine him as, Looking like, I don't know. Very tall and very, like, king. Light. Yeah, like, made of ice, almost. Yeah, and... whereas, like, she is, you know, and she is very, like, it describes her at some point that, you know, she is, like, dark-haired and kind of swarthy. Right. So you imagine her family might look similar, have similar coloring. Yeah. And he's, like, totally different. And Yeah. That's just funny. It's funny. Yeah. And it's also interesting that when they come in, she is at first not recognizable as not being a Staric. That when people see that, uh, when I think Stepan is the one whose voice we have here sees them, he's like, oh, and the two Staric came in. And then it like takes him a minute to realize that Miriam is not one of them because of this like dress that she's wearing, this whole aura about the two of them. Mm. The dance also, by virtue of them all doing this dance together, everybody has this like weird vision of like being in a forest with trees because they're like dancing the horror with the Starics. Oh, I thought he was doing, I thought he was being nice and he was setting them all in a different setting. I think, so. I wasn't sure if he was right? being Something nice like that? or if he can't help it. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, that's fair. I thought it was just kind of an effect of his magic, like in the same way that when Irina puts on the crown, like puts on the Staric jewelry, she sees herself as being kind of in that world, whether she's trying to or not. Oh, I, thought, I thought this was him giving them a nice wedding present by creating this outdoor, beautiful ballroom for them to dance in. That's nice. That makes I guess at this Staric. point, maybe, I'm, I guess, yeah, I guess I was a little bit sympathetic to the Staric at this yeah, point. Yeah, that, that makes him nicer. I'm, <laughs> I was definitely, the first time I read this, I was very just like confused by the Staric. Like, what is, what is your deal, my friend? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the dancing ends. He prepares to take Miriam away. Her parents are not on board. And the Tsar and Tsarina arrive, and then we have this battle between the Staric and the fire demon, who is uh, called the Chernobog, which is actually, I think, a thing in Eastern European mythology. Mm-hmm. The is kind of trying to get out of everyone out of the room, but Miriam stays and her family, including Wanda and Sergei and Stepan, who in many ways are also kind of like, they're all one family. They all stay and uh, eventually kind of manage uh, to trap the Tsarik with this chain They demand that he let Miriam go, which he refuses. And then with Irina's help, the Tsar slash the Chernobog manages to bind him. So you have to kind of get him with the chain. And then you also have to do this circle with candles. Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how she knew that, but I guess the demon told her. Yeah. And it's a lot of this like seemed familiar from various kinds of fairy lore that Certainly the chain thing, I don't know about the fire thing, but it kind of makes sense with the fire and ice situation that's happening here. (laughs) That fire would have this kind of effect. The Chernobog comes to eat him. The Staric refuses to give him his name, which apparently means that he will not be able to completely dominate him. That's a nod to Rumpelstiltskin, who we actually haven't even brought up yet. (laughs) 
Right. Yes. I mean, yeah, we actually haven't, but this is also sweet <laughs> to some extent. They take off on the Rumpelstiltskin legend that you know she can, you know, that you can spin straw into gold, and Miriam turns silver into gold, and the Staric is Rumpelstiltskin, but like Redux. <laughs> to some extent, actually, what they do with Rumpelstiltskin actually reminds me of Once Upon a of the TV show Once yep. Upon a Time, which I wonder if she's seen. Yeah, I wonder. Probably she's into fairy tales. <laughs> This is another reference to the names being very important. Names in the Rumpelstiltskin story traditionally can, can dominate and make him lose his power. Yeah, and that's something that you see a lot in, I think, fairy lore, this idea of this, like, true name. The Stark turns to Miriam and acknowledges that although she's killing not only him, but apparently all of his people are going to die because he's going to die. So he, he basically tells her that, but then acknowledges that despite that, you have done justly to me. I deserve this because I, you know, took you away without your believe this is fair enough and i think she, she he doesn't feel like he can ask for help he has nothing to give her that he can ask for help with well and it's also part of that is of course that they also they don't do favors mm-hmm. in the staric realm that they don't do favors they don't they don't have that they very much avoid this idea of any kind of favor or gift giving which would create an obligation or a bond that there has to be a kind of open and closed circle, like kind of opened and closed connection in some way, that everything has to be done explicitly in exchange for something. And that then also gives the Barkins a great deal of power. And Miriam is suddenly upset, mostly at this point because she's upset about the Staric people and especially this child whom she named, that she is horrified at the fact that she has actually condemned this child to death. Irina and Mernatius take the Staric to her father's dungeon, Marnacious figures out the whole jewelry thing at some point in here and reveals to Irina that he actually loved his brother, that his brother was the only person who was ever kind to him. And Irina realizes as he's talking that, and then he indeed, and then he kind of tells her explicitly that he's not the one that made the bargain that brought him this crown and the sense of killing his family and kind of bonded him to this demon, that it's actually his mother that she basically sold him to the demon in the woo, like in utero, which is also actually a Rumpelstiltskin connection. Oh, right, right. And he never had any power at all in, about this. Yeah, so he really never made any decisions. I guess I don't really particularly like him, <laughs> but, I, but I just think that he's very passive. He doesn't make any decisions himself and he's not very smart. I don't like him either at all, but this passivity, I think, to some way, in some ways makes more sense knowing that he's essentially never had the ability to make his own choices because he spent his entire life being possessed by a demon. That's true. That would make it difficult to learn to be your own person. So not that I like him, but I feel very sorry for him, that it's very clear that he didn't have the kind of option to be a normal person, essentially. True. That's that's true. Which still doesn't mean I'd want to be married to him, but <laughs> does explain something at least. So Miriam tries to figure out some way that she can save the Staric people. Meanwhile, also, uh, Irina, in thanks for Wanda's help with all of this, pardons her and her brothers from uh, the uh, supposed involvement in her father's death, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And uh, Miriam then also tells her grandfather and kind of loops him in on the fact that she feels that she owes a debt and has to find a way to repay it. In addition to this pardon... Irina had also given Wanda and her family the right to basically just pick some land and do whatever with it. And so they're planning on going back to the cottage and living there. They also kind of agree that Miriam's parents are going to come with them, which is all very nice. It's, it's very nice to kind of see this family, this like blended family being created. Yeah. Yeah. That wrapped up very nicely, happily. Yeah. And Wanda plants her mom's magic nut, but it doesn't quite feel right. 
Irina marries off Vasilia and Ilias and increasingly is feeling very sorry for Mernatius and grateful for her own parents who her father might kind of suck, but at least didn't actually knowingly sell her to a demon. He accidentally sold her to a demon, but he didn't knowingly sell her to a demon. She was for her husband and for her parental involvement, I guess, at this point. She really does. <laughs> it's sad. I don't think it's unrealistic per se, but it's it's just depressing how low the bar is <laughs> right. for a demon. <laughs> like you literally get a cookie for not being an actual monster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Miriam goes to see the Staric and uh, ends up making a bargain with him that he will end the winter if the Chernobog is defeated and that he will, in fact, help defeat him, potentially, and that they will no longer make these raids for gold that also involves some kind of rape and pillaging. And in exchange, she rescues him. The bargain thing is also really interesting in that he has to kind of specifically make promises to... Uh, Sergei and to her family in exchange for letting them help him that he cannot make any that he again once again he cannot accept favors from them he has to make a bargain with them before he will even let them help him mm -hmm. not die mm -hmm. basically so I think they get to like hunt the weird Staric animals and Noah and like none of the Staric will mm -hmm. ever bother them he can't just say thank you <laughs> right no no one can ever <laughs> say thank you not allowed maybe it's a good maybe it's a good rule for our own lives though maybe we should be doing things onto others as they have done to, onto us. You know, if someone does a nice thing for you, you don't just say thank you, you do something in return. That's a nice favor for them. Right. And it does kind of link to the idea that things like gift giving does actually create kind of reciprocal relationships, that there is an expectation that because that by accepting gifts, you now to some extent owe something. I mean, that is a medieval idea to some extent. Mm -hmm, definitely. And this is just the kind of extreme of that in some ways that in order to avoid these kind of open-ended obligations, um, that that is their culture, that they don't want those more open-ended obligations, which are created by gift giving or even giving thanks, that instead you have to have this kind of closed circle of bargaining. It is very neat and tidy most of the time in this book. Right. The Chernobog then comes to Irina to try and eat her because he's upset that the Staric has escaped. And she takes him into the Staric realm, which I was annoyed about, to be honest as a choice that she made, even though I kind of got it because he was going to eat her. And she wanted to protect her own people, her own kingdom. I, yeah. But it is like, ugh, like, you know that it's an entire kingdom and you're like taking a monster into it. It's, it's very much like no win situation, but it's like, this is... Questionable decision. She clearly also has like a hardness and ruthlessness to her, mm -hmm. which is quite apparent here. Irina also, while she's there, kind of reaches into the water with like the pool, which is connecting the cottages as like as a mirror and finds Wanda's mom nut and plants it in the Staric realm. And this is where the time thing that you mentioned before is definitely apparent because we at least see her do this before we hear where the nut comes from. And I'm not sure if that's a choice about how she's revealing things or if it's supposed to be a kind of weird time situation. So Miriam realizes that this is the same, that these two houses are the same and that therefore this is a kind of possible gateway to get the Staric back to his own realm, which he really kind of needs to, to not die at this point. And they don't even know that the Chernobog is there yet. He realizes that this is where the nut is from and wants to take the nut. 
but then acknowledges, kind of hears that the nut is like from their mom and that it was, there's this like thing about that it was like earned with her death and the death of their various siblings who died uh, in infancy or childbirth. And he agrees like, okay, no, that's your nut. That's not my nut. This is another place where the magic isn't fully explained, but we can accept it or we can theorize about it. And it's still fun to play around with. Yeah. Stefan agrees to give them the nut, but the Starks very much like, no, but it's not my nut. I can't do anything with the nut. Miriam does not have quite so many qualms about the nut. (laughs) So she drops it in the pool of water, which is how Arena gets it. She can reach into the water and grab it. They also say, they say the Hebrew blessing for fruit trees in bloom, which calls it forth. And we've now got a tree and the Staric, he's like melting. Right. It's not cold Um, enough for him there. Like literally that, that is what happens to Staric when they're like in the heat for too long. They Mm -hmm. melt. And the heat is a relative term. It's probably 30 degrees and snowing. Right. Right. (laughs) He's melting. The car is still icy, but the Staric is melting. <laughs> she brings him to the tree and he calls the road and she agrees to go with him to help on the condition that he will return her on the first day of winter. When they get there, they realize pretty quickly that the Staric or that the Chernobog is there and pretty much everything is literally melting. Miriam saves the day because apparently fighting fire with fire actually works. Or fighting fire with light, I guess. That turning the silver into gold makes it light. And that fights the fire of the Chernobog. Something like that. Again, it's not always entirely (laughs) clear how this magic system works. But it does work. But it does work, yeah. They defeat the Chernobog. So the Staric King kneels before her and says, Lady, though you choose a home in the sunlit world, you are a Staric Queen indeed. Because she is the one who actually won this battle. Mm Mm-hmm. We are again seeing his increasing respect for her and her abilities. The Chernobog returns to Irina and tries to eat her. But now it turns out that he actually can't, because he gave her word that he would leave her and hers alone. And then, even better, it turns out that because she's Irina, everyone in this kingdom is actually hers. And so is Mernatius, because, and this is that she actually claims it, because we're married and the, wi- and the rights of a wife supersede that of a mother. So basically, he's no longer yours. He is mine because you made me marry. You made him marry me. Mm-hmm. The Chernobog, who is sort of dying and can't consume anything to shore up his strength, is then able to basically be kind of like wiped out by you know the pile of sand to put out regular fires that the scullery maid throws over him, which is a nice end. Mm-hmm. And Renatius is suddenly way more into arena and we get this from uh, magretta her nurse's perspective who i think says something along the lines of uh, that she was looking at her like she was the most beautiful woman in the world right so he also is more drawn to her after she shows him how powerful and, and witting she can be right and of course literally saves his life oh yeah <laughs> and i mean it gives him a life arguably for the first time in his life because, like, because as I said, he spent his entire life being possessed by this demon. So I get why he's into her. I'm still not sure I get why she... It's nice of her that she freed him as opposed to leaving him to die. But I'm not sure I get why she would be into him. I don't know if she really... the fact that they keep saying he's very... I don't, you, didn't, I don't, I don't, you didn't really throw this into your summary, but I think she has her eye on one of the grooms, right? One of the, the servants... Oh, so yeah. he, so she might, I think it's implied that she might have a physical relationship with someone else, but she'll have a political relationship with Minertius, right? No? 
I was unclear as to exactly where she was in that plan. It actually seemed to be Mernatius's idea. And I'm not sure if it's an idea that she's on board with or not. Okay. I think she finds him attractive, which might be the first step. But it seems as though she will be, she will, she will have her needs taken care of one way or another. But I think it is also indicated that she does find Mernatius attractive and that given that he's no longer possessed by a demon, there's technically not a reason that they couldn't have a physical relationship. I think that's optimistic. I think she's going to go with this guy on the side. That's my guess. She might. That might be a better ending. I I feel like the like extent to which he like the way he's like looking her at the at the end. I feel like it's implied that like they're going to have a relationship now. Like I think he it's implied that he at least would want one. Right. Maybe that's the first decision yeah. he actually makes is deciding that he wants to be with her, that he wants to accept her as as his wife. Yeah. And we actually don't hear more from her directly, so it's sort of implied it's sort of I mean she's at least clearly on board with continuing to be Zarina but we actually I guess don't know exactly how she feels in this moment or about the fact that she is going to continue to be married to this person Mm -hmm. who now loves her I guess Mm -hmm. we do get more however about Miriam and her family kind of Mandelstam I guess they have like a lot of money now and they're like living in this like cottage in the woods so he forgives everyone's debts which I feel like if Miriam knew was happening she would be like low-key annoyed about (laughs) on principle yeah she worked hard for that for that money I know right uh that all of a sudden he's like no everything's fine but no they're all very happy Wanda delivers the letters letting everyone know about this and also tells them about the pardon and so everyone's like very happy to see her now and she and Sergei bury their father which is a nice mm-hmm. thing to do even though he was terrible then we go back to Miriam in the Starrett kingdom Apparently her skills at keeping accounts have come in handy because they need to like administer supplies, which I guess is not a thing that anyone had ever done before. Right. They don't seem to have much infrastructure. No. So she's like essentially creates a state <laughs> bureaucracy, which is kind of fun. And then the first day of winter comes and she is taken home with uh, him leading and escorted by like everybody in the kingdom. And he then, after having like, not as far as I can tell, having had like a conversation with her in six months, announces then to her parents that and like brings like a bunch of fancy stuff and announces to her parents that he is planning to that he would like their permission to court her she is very dismissive and annoyed about what staric ideas of courting probably are assuming that they involve some like unending quests <laughs> and a war or two and insists that he then has to court her and marry her by her family's laws and he is thrilled and says yes and she basically says, like, the fact that he agreed to do that makes me willing to marry him. And they have a Jewish wedding, which, again, I just find hysterical. This, like, rabbi <laughs> being, like, brought from Vishnia and marrying this woman to this, like, I assumed that when they were, when they were, right, when they were cleaning like, up the whole kingdom, that they had bonded over that. I don't know if they actually say that, but I just imagine them working hand in hand together cleaning up the kingdom from the Chernabog and finding common bond. It's clearly indicated that they bonded during the battle situation, at least. And it makes sense that they've bonded to some extent working together, even though he hasn't said anything to her about like, let's get married now. But yeah, but it is implied, I think, that there is some kind of connection forge. Uh, but also, I think to some extent, it also includes an idea about pra- like there's kind of a pragmatism to some extent that 
the fact that he values her and her skills uh, and that he's basically on board also with like, I guess she's going to raise her like weird <laughs> yeah. half star and yep. kids Jewish. They'll be Jewish. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like the kingdom of the Khazars, but like a weird ice world. Uh, yes, for, for listeners, the kingdom of the Khazars is this like semi-fictional Jewish kingdom that existed in the Middle Ages that like Jews were very excited about the idea of this whole thing um, that supposedly the king had converted and now it was this Jewish kingdom. So I guess that's like what the Star Kingdom is going to be now. Does she, is she able to leave? If she wanted to, could she stay home? Or she's bound to him no matter what? He, I think at this point, the fact that he asked for the permission to court her, and I think he'd actually agreed to let her go before, and that he basically said, like, she's, I think she came with him to fight of her own free will. And he said that he would take her home on the first day of winter. And I think that was indicating that he was letting her go permanently. And that he then now asks her parents' permission to court her is basically that he's, like, starting over. I do wonder, though, if the, if the deal they made in the first place to be married means that that can't ever be broken. So even if he takes, brings her back That's to visit true. her parents... Is she under that original obligation to go back? And it's not as much of a choice for her to be with him as we think it is. That's a good question. He seems to be acting like it's a choice or at mm-hmm. least like he's going to allow her to feel like it's a choice. I, I don't know. It's You're right. Yeah, that's actually not clear. Again, this magic system definitely has, has some lack of clarity at various <laughs> points. That's it. Still a it good does story. seem like he'd like agreed to bring her back and he does make like a better deal now and that he basically says like I can only go back and forth in winter but that any all winter she can like hang out with her family as much as she wants mm-hmm. I guess yeah which you know in terms of pre-modern arranged marriages is not the worst deal actually right they seem close enough yeah closer than than a lot of other families would be yeah so that actually leads into uh, the next segment, Vera et Falso, in terms of what they got right and what they got wrong. And I do think actually that the realism that everybody has around arranged marriages really works for me because it's so common in medieval media and medieval inspired fantasy that everyone first reacts with this utter horror and shock at the idea of an arranged marriage to somebody that you are not necessarily deeply in love with. In love with and that you are marrying for some combination of political and economic reasons. And I really like that, you know, Arena, it's not clear how she feels about Mernatius, but she's certainly like, okay, yeah, I'm the Tsarina now, and I'm going to basically, like, be running things because he's incompetent, and this marriage makes sense. We see that also with, the, right, with Miriam's grandfather, who also treats her marriage as a, an arranged marriage, where there might not be that much benefit for Miriam, but there certainly is a benefit to the, the husband, the groom, and this, it does feel normal. It feels normal to her to accept it like that. And she, I don't think she's upset about the fact that she's not going to love her husband. I think she's upset about the fact that her husband is taking her away to this other land. Yeah, and her ultimate acceptance of uh, this marriage as a thing that's happening is interesting because it's very much emphasizing that this is a marriage that I am on board with because uh, this is a person who I respect and who respects me and values my skills which is very much the kind of marriage that she and her grandfather were talking about as being ideal for her, just with like, you know, some dude who was probably a Jewish merchant. Right, yeah, that, that would have been the case if she was married to someone in the sunlit world, you're right. Yeah, that it's very much in some ways exactly the kind of practical arranged marriage that she was looking for. It's just like, 
with Weird Ice Dude. And I guess we should we should throw in some of the historical context about this, and maybe we'll get to this yeah. a little bit. That if she, if she was in living in the sunlit world, she would have been able to to work in her own way. So women in this period, especially Jewish women, were able to to have some sort of um, job, usually money lending. Uh, or helping their husbands with their business in some way they were involved um, so it's they they did have they were able to use certain skills to benefit their family yeah that that's absolutely would have been common in uh, medieval and early modern uh, northern and eastern Europe in particular mm-hmm. uh, less so in the Mediterranean because by which I mentioned just because that's my research yeah. but uh, you know in this context that's absolutely something she could have done Glickel of Hamel the uh, a Jewish woman who famously kind of wrote this memoir even said at some point that her husband made no decisions in business without her. And uh, this is very much, you know, the kind of figure that I think Miriam is being set up as being somebody very much like that, that that would be the expectation is that she and her husband would be running a joint business, which is to some extent what she's doing. And it's pretty clear that she's going to probably take on some serious administrative roles in her husband's business. It's just that his business is like Mm -hmm. an ice kingdom. So it's not so out of the realm. It's not so modern of us to, to look to, we, we don't have to look at this and say, well, that's impossible for a medieval or early modern woman to be so involved. It really was not impossible. Yeah. So that I think is really interesting. I think the only thing that's like slightly odd about her level of involvement is that when you do see women who are active, uh, who are, who are kind of working in that way in the records, it is most often married women are widows. You very rarely right. see unmarried daughters playing that kind of role. Oh, in the early part of the book, you're saying, right. Yeah, yeah, so that yeah, so and she kind of begins by kind of taking over and basically doing her father's oh, job, sure. essentially, that that's something that wouldn't have been as common, though. I do kind of buy that it isn't something that we have documentation of, but that it doesn't seem totally impossible that it could have happened in this kind of extreme odd situation. And it is true that women, at least in medieval France, when Jewish women were acting as moneylenders or go-betweens in some sort of business like this, uh, they would have often had to bring their children. So their children would have been involved in some capacity, maybe the the Christian women coming to Jewish homes in order to borrow money or whatever they were doing, their children might have been with them. So in some way, just because of the logistics of not having a daycare, (laughs) that their children would have been there in some capacity learning about the business. But you're right, they, they wouldn't, it would have been unlikely that they would have gone out on their own, especially the unmarried daughters. Right. I mean, yeah, so kind of using another example, again, from uh, Glickel of Hamel, uh, you know, a kind of, I, I see this as, I see this book for some reason as being vaguely, you know, late medieval, early modern. Me too. It's a bit, uh, a bit later and uh, German, but, but that it is, I think, a good connection. And Glickel, you very much see that her sons are kind of set up in business and uh, in, you know, in various ways, uh, usually around when they get married, but sometimes before as well. And the daughters are not set up in business in that same way. Although in some cases, there seems to be a yeah, I mean, you know, now that you're married, it might be the case that you would help your husband in the same way that I would. But she is a daughter without brothers. So that does potentially change the calculus. Mm, bit. True. I think there are some things that it actually does really well with that. I also find the Sabbath observance elements really interesting here yes i have i am not sure how accurate some of the jewish observance is though so i do like that she doesn't she says she can't work on sabbath that's that's in keeping jewish law and she gets some bread and wine i think to actually do the blessings also i i do wonder though about the likelihood of a jewish family living in a community where there's no other jewish families 
and that does make me think that it is more that it is much That's later in the medieval thought, period yeah. i don't this would not be common at all in the early modern period it does become a little a little bit more common i think but that that's the only part that I'm not sure about is that they they didn't go to synagogue. It, that that just strikes me as a little yeah. bit odd. I do think that Jew, Jews would have lived around other Jews in a community so that they could have access to kosher food, to kosher meat, and be able to go to synagogue. Right. Her mother's family, her grandfather, that actually is much more exactly. how we normally see Jews in the medieval and early modern world is that yeah. they're living in a Jewish quarter. And, uh, you know, there is clearly a Jewish community there actually is a moment where Ukrainian peasant children are all, you know, going in. And it's very clear that like, okay, this is a place Mm -hmm. where now there are basically only Jews, which by the early modern period would have been true that these Jewish quarters would have Mm -hmm. been pretty much exclusively Jewish. Whereas in the medieval Mm -hmm. period, it probably would have been much more mixed, Mm -hmm. especially in Western Europe. And that is definitely the kind of atmosphere that Jews would have lived in in this period that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it is a little bit more odd for her immediate family, for Miriam and her parents to be living in this town where they're the only Jews, especially given that they don't seem to have the means to be even traveling regularly. Like it doesn't seem like they're always going to Vishnia for holidays even or anything along those lines. That's definitely a bit odd. It also is fun that she uh, she does not have any problems with the wine that she gets in the Staric realm as presumably not being kosher wine. Right. But. Right. Or the right the food that she gets is not kosher food in the Staric land, but it's right. not explicitly non-kosher. It's not actually. So it's interesting. I mean, so the wine is a problem because of, you know, the thing that makes wine kosher is being made by Jews, so the Staric wine probably isn't. But the rest of the food, I mean, she she never eats pork and she also I mean, she mostly it seems like eats fish which has fewer slaughtering-related issues even than... She doesn't know what kind of fish it is, but in Eastern Europe, I don't think there were that many kinds of fish right. that were accessible that were not kosher. I'm not much of a marine right. biologist, but the ones that I think of as being non-kosher is, is shellfish. I'm not and either, I don't know but... how common shellfish is in that part of the world at this time. We think of Maine lobster. They weren't getting Maine lobster yeah. or Atlantic salmon in that area, but... Yeah. Yeah. And with some exceptions, I feel like you'd know if what you were getting was like, I feel like you would know what what you were getting was right. shellfish. Right. Yeah, they were probably eating to, like, regular fish. I don't know. Uh, this goes beyond my, <laughs> but I'm interested. Yeah. yeah. And fruit, fruit, it would be fine too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So she actually mostly does eat food that at least like in the circumstances that she's in, yep. she's been yep. keeping as kosher as possible, which is interesting. I also appreciated that it doesn't shy away from every the realities of everyday anti-Judaism, that it's made pretty clear that the people who are around them, for the most part, don't necessarily like Jews very much. Mm-hmm. They see them as different. These are people who are not us, and they're not yeah. as, you know, you name adjective here. They're not as smart as us. They're not as good as us they're not as whatever you want to say yeah we'll talk about that a little more when we kind of get into our next section where you talk in a little more detail about jewish money lending but it's interesting that there is this kind of indication that jews are other they are to Mm -hmm. some extent resented but that they do overall Mm -hmm. live in kind of relative security which is true to the medieval world a couple of things here and there that it's to some extent hard to say like oh they got this wrong because it's clearly a fantasy realm (laughs) one more in the author's favor before we go to (laughs) the things that we're going to quibble about um i did i did appreciate the way that the town the relationship between the town and the city was portrayed their town even have a 
name, I think they say, and I think they mention it once or twice, but I'm not sure if that's actually their town or the neighboring town, but their town is so small that it's insignificant. And she says the Lord barely even knows that they're there. And I, I liked that, that there was a big difference between the town and the city that I think is probably still true, but uh, certainly historically accurate where uh, the people in the, in, the, in the local towns just felt no connection to the main authority and vice versa, that they wouldn't have much interaction. Yeah, that they, they kind of barely even seem to really know who the Duke mm-hmm. is, that there's obviously this connection that there is in the city, but that out in this smaller village, it's not quite as apparent. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things that it's hard to, to some extent, say she got wrong because it's a fantasy work, but that didn't quite ring true. There's actually one that, uh, my apologies, it was not originally in my notes that I sent to you because it just occurred to me this morning, which is actually a problem with uh, Miriam's Jewish wedding at the end to the Staric Lord. Okay. Which is, first of all, who is this rabbi who was on board with performing what is apparently an interfaith marriage? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and lets the Starics convert to Judaism? <laughs> I mean, honestly, in some circles, it's hard to find a rabbi today who will do that. Right. There's that, unless, like, as I said, unless he, like, converted to Judaism, which we don't get that scene. Are they married by a rabbi? Yeah. It actually says at the end that, like, a rabbi should, that, like, their their grandparents come, like, with a rabbi, rabbi. implying that he is involved, and that they sign a ketubah, that they sign the, you know, Hebrew, the uh, Aramaic Jewish marriage contract. Because there's this bit there, and he he signs his name, and it is his, and he does use his true name. And traditionally, for the listeners, there there's no option to marry a non-Jew in this period. Yeah, but <laughs> at all. Right, that marriage is defined essentially from a Jewish perspective as being something that is between Jews, and this is still controversial in a lot of Jewish circles today. My parents are intermarried. My mom is Jewish, and my dad is not, and this is something that I, you know heard a lot of negative comments about growing up Mm. so uh, the kind of very casual intermarriage to like an ice demon well it could be it could be a modern statement i don't know anything about the author's personal life um, but it it could be a way of saying it it can always something can always be done if this is what is right for the people involved you know it could be something she's saying in modern she lives in new york city so she modern new york city where this is her take on something going on in the jewish world but i don't know enough about her to be able to to say that yeah i don't either um but yeah but that would be interesting it's to the extent of if this is supposed to be a kind of commentary on uh, intermarriage uh you know intermarriage especially in this case like yeah well i mean if we're agreed we're gonna raise my child our children jewish but you know he's not jewish and that's fine mm-hmm. not that he seems to have like a religion either so hmm. But he's not Jewish. No, he's not. I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I wasn't even thinking about that. I mean, he's not Christian. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, about this marriage is that Sergei and Wanda would not be valid witnesses, that you are definitely not permitted also to have non-Jews witness a contract. That's true. That is true, too. Yeah. But Swande and Sergei for our witnesses. Wow. Interesting. So, so in early modern terms, this was not a valid Jewish wedding. No, that she, I mean, she goes into this whole bit about like, am I val, am I legally married before? And then insists on having what she then sees as a legally valid marriage. And it's just like, and he breaks the glass and like they're under the chuppah, um, that they have like a traditional Jewish wedding. But according to Jewish law, they are not actually really married in some ways, both because he's not Jewish, but then because the whole thing is also invalidated by their witnesses. It, again, it could also be a commentary on 
traditional Jewish law now and how, you know, I don't something like that. I don't want to I don't want to say too much, put too many words in her mouth. But this could be something about the the legalities of traditional Jewish law not being relevant in the modern society. But that is a crazy extrapolation. So excuse me for that. (laughs) No, no problem. And, you know, if she is making a political point, I'm certainly, you know, fine with that. I'm certainly fine with the (laughs) politics of the whole thing. It is just something that seems a little odd for a character who's very concerned in a lot of ways about things be about traditional Jewish observance, Mm -hmm. that there is this whole kind of marriage that happens that leading members of the Jewish community, including a rabbi, are participating in, which is not anything. Like, if you sent this to a rabbi and he, like, wrote his, like, responsum about this, A, he would be very confused, but B, (laughs) I think he would ultimately rule that this was not, in fact, a valid marriage. Unless, well, there is a lot to be said about marriage to demons in Jewish folklore. There's a lot of stories about being married to demons. And in, yeah. in one story, there are a few medieval and early modern stories, the, the wedding, the marriages themselves are Jewish weddings. So in one story, yeah. the, de- the demon wife goes to the husband and says, um, I married you in accordance to Jewish law. I deserve these rights that anyone, yeah. that any Jewish person would get. So in a way, I was going to argue that the the de- because he's not a mortal person, then that makes him exempt from having to follow the same rules as a Jewish man would have to follow if he was getting married to her. But if we look from a folktale perspective, um, demons do have to follow Jewish law when they're getting married to mortals. Right. This feels like a very silly conversation to have, but that even de- demons have to follow Jewish law if they want to marry a Jewish person. <laughs> Right. But there is very much in those folktales an emphasis on procedure. I mean, a number of them are things like some dude thought it would be a funny joke to put a ring on the finger of like a weird statue and repeat the word, the kind of formal words of, you know, a Jewish betrothal and marriage. And then it's like, whoops, sorry, you're married now Mm -hmm. because actually the statue had this like, you know, had like this demon inside Mm -hmm. it. And so now you're married to her. Congrats. Right. Even though the statue is not Jewish. (laughs) So I wonder if demons don't count as non-Jews in some fundamental way, so that the Staric doesn't count as a non-Jew, but the witnesses are still an issue, I think. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) I also wanted to note that there's this kind of big emphasis on this figure who makes liquor, and especially in a small town in early modern, like, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, Jews are actually the ones making a lot of the liquor. And just a kind of interesting thing that's like, oh, okay, it could have been fun if they'd done something with that, as opposed to having this just, uh, I guess, Christian liquor maker, the Krupnik salesman. Hmm. The other thing I will say is that the Jews clearly all have some amount of religious observance and take religion seriously. Christianity is oddly absent. There is the scene with Irina going to pray. Yeah, but we don't hear anything about her prayers. And she does seem to be the only somewhat devout person in the text besides the if you think about magic as being some sort of religion or witchcraft as being a religion which doesn't even really present that way in the book but that might be the the, the core of Judaism here right and the Staric have this I don't know this weird like bargain thing like that almost seems like this kind of like pseudo religion that they have mm-hmm. or like pseudo religious legal system that they have but 
yeah, except for this one moment of, yeah, Arena goes and prays, it really doesn't seem like the the non-Jews are kind of blank from a religious perspective in some ways that we pray that she prays, but we don't know anything about the content of her prayers. There are never any references that anyone makes to Jesus or the Virgin Mary. It is a little bit refreshing because we're not seeing Jewish characters in relation to Christian ones. We're seeing Jewish characters in relation to non-Jewish characters, but so much of the narrative about medieval and early modern period is Jews and Christians, Jewish Christian relations. So it's a little bit refreshing to see them portrayed not not talking about their religious beliefs or their faith or observance in comparison to one another, but them as people, as characters, uh, how they relate. I do really like that. I do really like the way it portrays the Jewish characters and and their relationships with non-Jews and the kind of ideas that non-Jews have about Jews. Uh, I think my only thing is just that I do... I do wish that there had at least been kind of brief references to the fact that the non-Jews also have mm-hmm. a religion, especially because, of course, anti-Judaism is very much present and Christianity is in a very deep way at the root of anti-Judaism, yeah. that a lot of it is linked to the ideas of Jews as Christ killers, for example. This is a context where you're seeing blood libel accusations where Jews are being accused of you know, murdering Christian children and using their blood to make matzah. And not that I think there needed to be a blood libel accusation in this book. I think it's probably the best mm-hmm. that there wasn't. But it does seem odd that the Jews seem to be the only ones who actually have a religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another quibble I had was that I don't quite understand why Sergei and Wanda could not have pretty easily passed off their actions as self-defense and basically been fine with that. Even as kids, they're not adults, they're kids. They still... Maybe even more so, they could have passed them off as self-defense, but that they're yeah. that they would have that they're not strong enough. They would have had to go out with an intent of murder, or else they wouldn't have been able to physically do this. And we see, like Kajus and his and Lucas see the beginning of it and see that it begins by him starting to beat them just for her basically saying no to a request. Well, that in itself is not grounds for killing someone in the no. in this period. They, she wouldn't have a case if that was what they were defending against. If you kill someone because they were beating their daughter, that's not self-defense, I don't think. Right, well, yeah, but it's, it, it is, I don't know, it does, it does seem pretty clear in the context that, like, he was attacking them, you could argue attacking them with intent to kill them. Yeah, yeah, you could. It just seems a little odd that everybody immediately assumed that they could not possibly have any, um, that, like, there could not be any possible defense, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, self-defense was you're saying is is something that would be a defense. (laughs) Yeah, and there certainly would have been an argument against it being self-defense. And I could see them wanting to say, avoid a court case. Right. They they don't know any of this. They don't know what they wouldn't. They wouldn't be able to think about this stuff on their own. They just didn't have the background. That's true, that they certainly wouldn't have had any kind of awareness of what the case would have been. But they do kind of panic quite quickly and it does seem like, and also everybody seems to kind of hate them immediately and immediately assume that they must be guilty. Mm-hmm. And they're not even Which, Jewish. <laughs> they're not even Jewish. I guess they're kind of in part, maybe the problem is that they're kind of tarred by association with these Jews. Maybe that's part of the problem. I wonder. But also on the other hand, like it seems like everybody basically knows about their father and that he's an abusive drunk. Yeah, it didn't stop the Kajas from being willing to join the family. 
Oh, yeah. But he did even like when he saw the extent of the abuse, he even was like, I don't want to get involved in this. True. Anyway, so it does seem like it's possible that they could have actually been, you know, forgiven on a kind of self-defense basis. And uh, that it's odd that everyone's like that this immediately does not seem like a possibility. Mm -hmm. But it is also the case that it's not like they have any legal knowledge. Right, right. Anything else that you had in mind in particular about things that you're not quite sure they did right? Quite sure they did right. I thought she did a great job. I I really liked yeah. the depiction of this this fantastical, somewhat historical world. I did too, and I I mean, in general, I like this kind of fantasy that's clearly inspired by history, but not history itself. I think it allows a lot of flexibility for taking things from a real medieval world, but also being able to play with that world and basically kind of do what you want. And to some extent, all of the kind of historical quibbles are like, yeah, well, but also there's like an ice monster and a fire monster. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, I think the question is, would I call this historical fiction? I'm not sure if I would or not. I'm not sure. I think that I, because my inclination is that I would want to say historical fiction as opposed to fantasy would have to be more clearly set in a more specific, like in a more specific and real time and place. Whereas this is clearly essentially an alternate universe. That is just one that's heavily inspired by, let's say like late medieval Eastern Europe. We wouldn't call Game of Thrones historical fiction. No. So I would say fantasy rather I wouldn't necessarily give it the label of historical fiction, but it is on the other hand still clear that I think she did some research. Oh, yeah. And that she, I think, did do a great job in terms of creating this world that is historically inspired and is using and playing with historical reality in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. For our next segment, the Historia at Veritas segment... I wanted to talk then in a little bit more detail about, in particular, the kind of phenomenon of Jewish money lending in the medieval and early modern world, since this is a profession that for a long time was very quintessentially associated with Jews, to, of course, the extent that the Latin verb Judaizare came to mean to lend money at interest. And essentially, Christians were not permitted to lend money at interest. Jews are permitted to lend money at interest to non-Jews. So even though in practice, Jews are also doing other things and Christians are finding ways to lend money at interest, it is to some extent a kind of niche that Jews are able to fill economically. And especially in Eastern Europe, it's something that Jewish communities were invited to settle there in places like Poland uh, and what is now Ukraine, Lithuania, Russia. Jewish communities are invited to settle there specifically so they can work as moneylenders. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, of course, that I think is worth keeping in mind in relation to that is uh, that they don't have the kind of religious anti-Judaism. What she includes is a sort of economically motivated, largely anti-Judaism, that even though I don't think she ever explicitly used the word uses the word usury, there are these moments like with Oleg, the uh, charioteer who attacks her, where he basically says that all of these are ill-gotten gains that you've taken from other people and that you don't really have a right to this, that everything that you own is theft. And this is how some medieval people would have thought about the gains of usury. Mm -hmm. I don't think the average medieval person, when they saw a Jewish person, was thinking about the theological arguments to and for Judaism as a religion. I think they were thinking about how the average Jewish person affects them, which was on a day-to-day basis in the economic realm. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes sense that that was a lot of the kind of realities of everyday anti-Judaism that 
to some extent, I'm sure it did also matter the kind of way in which in the visual arts, Jews are kind of depicted as Christ killers, I think probably does matter to some extent. But and it's very, yeah, because I, I don't want to necessarily say that they would have like been fine with Jews if the Jews hadn't been moneylenders, I guess. Well, they did kill Jesus. I mean, that was that was definitely, a, I think, a fact among medieval people that they 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 thought they really believed strongly believed that. Yeah, but that then this does get fed into by this idea of uh, usury as something that Jews do, which then also, of course, is presented as something which Jews do, which victimizes Christians, and uh, that Jews are presented as, it's all kind of linked, and that Jews are presented as hating Christians, just like they hated and killed Jesus, and this hatred leads them to essentially economically exploit Christians, and this whole idea allows Christians to then present themselves as a the victims, despite the fact that they are the ones who are in power. Right. And money lending is, of course, a position which, on the one hand, brings at least some Jews a lot of wealth and often brings them some amount of power and connection with royal authorities. I mean, we have reference to the fact that, you know, the Duke and potentially even the Tsar are or are open to borrowing money from Jews. But it is very much a kind of double-edged sword in that this also means, A, that they're kind of exclusively dependent on the protection of uh, these rulers, and also that if these rulers decide it benefits them to maybe not so much have the Jews, uh, and then we might not have to pay all of our debts, then this is then also a danger. We also can't forget that money lending puts Jews and Christians into very close we might call them social situations. And when you're doing an economic transaction, often in someone's own home, you know, you're sitting on their couch, you're maybe drinking their wine, you're, you're, you're yeah. interacting on a personal level uh, that can be good or bad, depending on the circumstances. Yeah, and that is, I guess, one of the things that it would have been interesting to see dealt with a little differently, is that to some extent, I think uh, Novik is uh, kind of using the traditional story which emphasizes Jewish money lending as something that created hostility. But increasingly, there has been a lot of scholarship about the fact that some of these relationships were neutral or even positive, that this is a Mediterranean context, but that we have a 14th century case where there is a dispute between a Jewish creditor and his Christian debtor, and he had Christian character witnesses. And these are other people who were borrowing money from him. Mm. And so I do wish to some extent that there had been something of a complication here of the traditional narrative that lender that relationships between Jewish moneylenders and Christian debtors are always inherently marked by animosity, which is very much the case in mm-hmm. this book, that although she has relationships with non-Jews, those are built through other means. Mm-hmm. And there's always a tension, seems to be a tension there, at least at the beginning when they're becoming more friendly. Yes. So that I guess I guess Wanda is technically her debtor, but she's not really her debtor. Her father is, so it's a very different. And she hates her father. Mm-hmm. So, right, and then it does take her a while to loosen up to the idea that these Jews could be her friends and then her family. Yeah, and I think that it, uh, you know, money lending is very much something that created proximity and created possibilities for some amount of cultural exchange. That it's uh, indicated that Jews probably became kind of more aware of certain aspects of Christian culture, potentially even took ecclesiastical objects into pawn. Joseph Schatzmiller has argued that one of the reasons for similarities between Jewish and Christian art is because Jews came into contact with Christian art that they received as pawns in exchange for money lending. And so I do think that the case of Wanda is interesting in that it creates this possibility for proximity and economic relationships to create these connections between Jews and non-Jews. But 
it would have been nice to maybe see it be a little more complicated in terms of what her relationship, what uh, Miriam and her family's relationship is with the village at large. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And of course, keeping in mind that they're also providing an important service as part of it too, that of course there, I'm sure, was resentment of Jewish creditors. But on the other hand, uh, being in debt in the Middle Ages was quite normal. Pretty much everybody was in debt all the time to somebody or probably multiple people especially if you're kind of at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, but honestly pretty kind of widely across it in a lot of ways. And so the fact that they are lending money, and in particular that her father actually lends money quite generously, although, you know, she then comes back to collect on it eventually. But it actually does seem like the way in which their lending is presented could in this village, it could have opened up space for there being more recognition among the villagers of the fact that these Jews who live among them are providing a service that they in fact deeply need. Mm -hmm. They're also, I I didn't go back and check this, but I think when she gets the fabric and has for the dresses and starts selling dresses, I think that might be a little bit more of a positive relationship between her and the other non-Jewish people around her that they're that they 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 appreciate the this beautiful fabric she's getting from the city and they appreciate the beauty of of the new dresses which i also find interesting in that one of the things that i do take a little issue with is that to some extent i think novik has an idea about money lending and usury which is a bit ambivalent in fact and which in some ways does almost kind of echo medieval christian ideas about there being something to some extent wrong or unnatural with making money out of money, which is exactly what she does by turning silver into gold. Mm -hmm. And this is a power which is not natural. And I think it is telling that the connection that she is able to make doing business with Christians is over the selling of goods in exchange for money, which is seen as more natural and normal, Hmm. as opposed to money is kind of making something out of nothing. Oh, that's interesting. Just using money to make more money. I, I, yeah, I didn't think about it that way. She becomes more sympathetic when she starts doing that part of her business than when she's knocking on doors demanding money from people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there are interesting things being done here. But uh, And as I said, I do also think it's interesting in that regard that her own parents have this very negative attitude in a lot of ways toward money lending, which also kind of echoes how medieval Christians would have thought about money lending. Mm-hmm. And they describe it describes her as hard and cold and cold as ice and and asking for some kind of uh, insensitively asking for money or goods from families who struggle. And then towards the middle of the book, her character develops into one that's a lot more sympathetic. But at the beginning, I was not sure if she was going to be the villain or not. <laughs> Miriam. <laughs> I was pretty sure she wasn't going to be the villain just based on the kind of description which very much centered her, uh, the kind of initial description of the book. I was pretty clear that she wasn't going to be the villain because of that. But she is a figure who I feel like I found very sympathetic at the beginning, but maybe that's because I study Jewish women moneylenders. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, that she's in that she's arguably not entirely sympathetic, that she is somebody who is hard in some ways. And uh, that that is uh, a quality that I think to some extent is presented somewhat ambivalently that hardness is ultimately in some ways associated with strength, but also is associated with this coldness, which is not necessarily a positive. Right. With that, I wanted to move on to talk to our section Fabula Nostra, where we each come up with some sort of alternative piece of media inspired by this one. The way 
I went with this is that I actually tried to come up with a different kind of story that would maybe do something similar to what Novik is doing in terms of using fairy tales and history, and then decided that I was not coming up with anything that was especially intelligent or exciting and that it would really take a lot of work to come up with that. And that if I ever do, maybe I should write that novel, but <laughs> I would read it. Yeah. Right. Thank you. But since I did I just was, uh, was kind of throwing around some ideas for casting of this. I was thinking Eva Green would be interesting for Miriam. I'm not sure I know her. She is, uh, let's see, she was in Penny Dreadful. She is the, uh, she's Vesper Lind in Casino Royale. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I don't know if you've seen her in anything, but she, uh, she is actually, I believe, of Jewish or partly Jewish background and is somebody who like, I mean, she's like she is gorgeous who Miriam is like not presented as being, but it's Hollywood. So honestly, it's pretty hard to not <laughs> find, to find like actresses in particular who are not absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, so given that I think she, she has these kind of like angular features, um, which I think kind of track to some extent with how Miriam is described. And Ooh, okay. she's also somebody who I think does a really good job of playing to some extent, ambivalent characters who tend to be ultimately I'm not sure I've seen her play a villain per se, although I think she could be great at it. But she does play a lot of characters who are complex and who we don't always have a lot of clarity about what their motivations are. And I think she could do a good job of portraying this character who is ultimately very much a hero, but is also in some ways very harsh in terms of how she react interacts with other people. Okay. Um, I was thinking Tom Hiddleston for the Staric Lord because I feel like Loki almost had like almost has like the right <laughs> vibe just like maybe a little like less snarky I guess or maybe like equally snarky but just like less of a sense of humor about his about it I, I might want him to be a little bit more appealing like a little more uh someone you want to get to know because they're so mysterious who would you go with Oh, I don't know. This game is so hard for me. I had my students do this and they were, they were, they had so many names that people I've never heard of, but for other stories, but someone like, uh, like the, the one from the Vampire Diaries. I have not seen that. But, uh, um, Ian Summerhalder. Okay. I don't know who that is, but. He's like very smoldering. Okay. So I guess he's dark, like he has dark hair, but someone like that smoldering. Yeah. Or actually, like somebody uh, an ice version of that, right? <laughs> Whatever the icy version of smoldering is, right? Actually, somebody like uh, Alexander Skarsgård, uh, who does like the Viking uh-huh, vampire uh-huh. in True Blood. Exactly, exactly, good, like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, could be like the sexier version of the Star King. <laughs> right. I think Gwendolyn Christie, who plays Brienne of Tarth, would be great as Wanda because it's very much like her physical strength is actually very much emphasized. Mm, that's true. But she is tall and has long blonde braids. I think in one of the sections yeah yeah that she's very much she's like sort of like tall and broad Mm. in how she's portrayed and so i think it actually like she could actually be really good in terms of portraying this kind of like like there aren't a lot of like tall and broad actresses right also unfortunately i think she'd be good i was having a really hard time with irina especially because of the fact that Irina also is very much like, it's very much like a point of her character that she's not actually super attractive. Yeah, I'm sure some makeup and some messy hair could get the point across in Hollywood. Right, yeah. So again, but like it is somewhat awkward, but I don't know. So I was going back and forth. Uh, what I'm actually going to say is not the same as what I came, what I wrote down. But I was thinking somebody who's like 
maybe a little bit weird looking hmm. in some ways could be a good fit. And uh, Saoirse Ronan hmm. I think could be interesting. Okay. Like quirky. Like seems to have like a good quirkiness. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, just because like it seems a little bit silly. Like there are certain people that like you can't really have in a role where everybody's like, where like Mernatius is every five seconds being like, why does everybody think you're attractive? <laughs> you have a lot of self-confidence to play that role. <laughs> right. But the person who I do think would be good as Mernatius, because Mernatius is portrayed as being like very like stunning, but in a kind of pouty way is uh, Timothy Chalamet. Oh, for sure. Chalamet? Chalamet, yeah. yeah. Chalamet? Yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll definitely give you that one. That's all I came up with. Did you have any other thoughts or suggestions about what you would do with aspects of the story or with casting it or I would really like to see it as a movie and I think there is there it goes back and forth that there was a movie deal and then there wasn't because some scenes I just really wanted to see and I have the vision in my head obviously she's a very descriptive writer but are some that I think would really come to life like the scene where he's drawing the picture and you see her and she's like this shining thing and then you see it through his eyes and he's, she's just normal looking. Like something like that where you can play around with the different perspectives. Yeah. Um, I think would be really, really great. And I like the, I was confused by the description of the Stark kingdom. And I would like to see that presented visually just so I can visualize it yeah. better. Because there's a mountain in the middle of this kingdom that has all these, uh, these chambers inside that are made of icy walls. And then there's a crack right. in the mountain. And th- that I didn't quite grasp. I'm not so much of a of someone who can visualize those things. So I really would have liked to see that come to life. Yeah. And I'd like to see the visuals of some of mm. these battles too, that she also like, she has a lot of description, but I also had a hard time to some extent really kind of mm-hmm. properly visualizing it. And it would have been interesting to like see what that looked like. And I think also the like fire ice battle would be very mm-hmm. cool on screen. Definitely. They just need a big budget. Oh, yeah. So, but yeah, I actually think this would make a pretty good movie. Yeah. Comes time to rate this on a scale of one to five, uh, five being the highest. On whatever criteria you deem appropriate, I have a very miscellaneous set of criteria, which tends to be a combination of, if I like something, historical accuracy, and honestly, in terms of a lot of the movies I watch in particular, if it seems like it really hates women. (laughs) Um, So what would you give this? I would give it a, can I give decimal points? Yeah. I would give it a (laughs) 4.8. Okay. (laughs) I I really liked it. I love the characters. I do like the historical elements. Uh, I think she has done her research. Um, My only, the the little point too, is that I am not convinced by her marrying the Stark Lord at the end. Yeah. Because it reminds me of the, the original Rumpelstiltskin story where the girl is put, at least the version that I'm familiar with, the girl is put in this room and told to spin straw into gold for three nights or whatever it is, or she'll be killed. And the person who makes that order, who says she has to stay in the room or, and make straw into gold, or she'll be killed, is the king, and then she marries him. And that, at right. least the version I know, unless maybe it's the father or something, but she's, she's in this relationship with the person who forced yeah. her to do this thing and led to all these events so that troubles me about the original story and it troubles me about this story that I'm just not sure if he's redeemed himself enough as a character to make me happy that they're going to be together yeah that the star king is sort of simultaneously he's sort of simultaneously like that king and rumpelstiltskin and neither of them are (laughs) right right 
I definitely share those uh, concerns. Uh, the thing that on my reread made me come around to some extent is thinking about it from the perspective of arranged marriages rather than falling deeply in love. Okay. And that this is something that it's like, well, maybe it's not like the best possible situation, but there are ways in which this is a very good marriage. True. And I think she's happier with the kind of power she can have in the in the Staric world than maybe the alternative, which might not allow her to have his freedom in the sunlit world. Yeah, so I think thinking about it from that perspective actually made me like it more than the first time I read it when I wasn't, I obviously was aware of the historical context, but that wasn't the kind of emphasis I had when reading it. And I was very much just like, oh, I'm not sure about these redemptions. Mm -hmm. But yeah, thinking about it as an arranged marriage, which makes sense kind of makes it work for me more. And I think I would ultimately, I'm going to go ahead and give this a five out of five. That this is a piece of media that I genuinely really liked. I really liked overall how she used history. And I think that this did a number of things well in terms of having a kind of treatment of religion and in particular actually having Jews who are very much excluded from most fictional medieval and medieval inspired fantasy settings mm -hmm. and I think that she did that very well and I, I really appreciate a lot of things about this book and I actually would love to have this have an even wider audience than it has had and again I think this would be a great movie I, I think I'm certainly going to look at some of her other books and yeah as I said uprooted I very highly recommend okay I'll check it out thank you for assigning this book for me I really really appreciate it <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. And so as we wrap up, uh, are there places where our listeners could find you on the internet? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at C. Gruenbaum. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media, Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And if you have any questions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. Uh, Carolyn, thanks so much again for coming on. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye.